G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to the Elders, past, present and emerging. This week we bring you three reports. First, a lockout and bans at Fremantle Port has Cube workers fight for their work-life balance. Then we talk to Luke Hutchinson from the United Services Union about the union reaction to talk of a possible privatisation of water and sewerage services threatening jobs and the future viability of council services at the Central Coast Council in New South Wales. Finally, we look at what is going on in Sydney with the increasing numbers of COVID cases and where a group of Sydney-based trade unionists, academics and healthcare professionals are demanding that the New South Wales government lock down to zero. In Western Australia, Kew Port of Fremantle and Kiwana, stevedores are in dispute over punishing rosters and failures to notify for shifts in proper time. Cube employees have not refused to attend work and are not on a four-week stoppage, nor have they notified for one. They are only unavailable for work when Cube fail to allocate their shifts prior to 1400 WST on the day before any scheduled work, despite Lynx, Patrick and DP World all meeting this deadline for their employees. Here is Will Tracy, Secretary of the Western Australian Branch of the MUA, to explain what is going on. The workforce at Cube have been effectively locked out of their workplace by Cube with the with the bans we've got in place for uh, three weeks now, 21 days. And uh, they are having a dispute over their agreement, the, the new EA. The workforce down there had put a set of local claims together which had 42 claims on it. The company refused to agree to any of those claims. A lot of these, uh, as they are for uh, many wharfies, many workers, in fact, revolve around issues that go to work-life balance. This is one of the key issues we've been trying to push to get the required notice uh, of when you're working the next day and what shift it may be so that you've got an ability to, one, plan your life, but in particular for casuals, they've got the ability to take other work if they're unable to get a shift uh, with Q. Um, and as we well know, the nature of casual work in Australia today is that many, many people work across a number of jobs and to find out at four in the afternoon whether you've got a uh, start at your key job the next day basically locks you out of taking any other work because people have already got their uh, their required um, people for the job they've got the next day by that time. So it's an important issue for the guys here, but uh, I just want to make the point that there were 42 claims uh, over 18 months of negotiations and local management in Fremantle refused to agree to any of them. And there are excessive issues here around fatigue, uh, around hours of work, um, around consecutive shifts, rolling people from seven or eight day shifts in a row straight into four 12-hour night shifts or because there's bans on working more than four 12-hour night shifts, which is a 7 to 7 pickup, they then bring them back, they'll do them 7 to 7, and then they'll swing them back to 6 to 6 to get around it and then throw them back out to uh, night shift again and run consecutive 12s at them. So, uh, you know, guys working up to 19 shifts in a row, 
most of them 12-hour night shifts, all of these sorts of things, which is really hammering these guys. Workers are organising planned days off in advance. And in the last six months, the company will run them a night shift into that day off when they've got kids sport and everything the next day. And it'll be a 12-hour night shift straight into the uh, 7 o'clock start of what would have been a day shift in the day they've got off. So they're driving around after having worked a full night shift taking the kids to sport and all these sorts of things. Is there a discipline uh, arrangement around workers uh, not complying? No, that's right. They stand over guys for not taking shifts. So casuals, we had a casual here who was getting uh, other work um, and as a result of that couldn't take the shifts that were being thrown at him at four o'clock by cube. And so they, as some sort of retribution for taking the other work, they just kept him off the roster for three weeks. It's the sort of stuff that they do. Uh, and this is a guy with uh, three kids and, you know, you know uh, a mortgage, uh, all of these sorts of things. And that's that's the consistent behaviour we see time and time again. It's all driven by a manager over here who has a reputation for bullying and standover behaviour. He, he takes all of this sort of inability to get labour the way he wants to get it, regardless of uh, both the safety and the personal consequences of doing what they're doing. And if workers try to seek some sort of work-life balance or get an understanding of working safely, then uh, he starts to bully and harass and stand over. Look, I'll, I'll tell you how bad it is here. Six out of the seven supervisors uh, are on show cause uh, letters, ship managers are on show cause letters why they shouldn't be terminated for uh, refusing to do the work of Wolfies. So there's a corruption that we'll pick up and the way they're going about their allocations and um, the workforce here, quite frankly, have had enough. It's just killing these guys over here. And these sorts of problems become uh, more prevalent uh, when work is busy. Uh, and that's the issue we've had here. Um, all of those cracks in agreements that always remain silent um, really come to the surface when work is super busy and they're trying whatever they can to get labour to jobs. Does this mean that they're, they're not employing enough people? And does it mean that you've got OHS issues? Uh, both of the above, Annie. Um, so one, they're not employing enough people with enough skills. They're not putting enough people up into the skills that are required and they simply don't have enough people because they can work what they've got, how they want to work it by having these excessive runs of consecutive shifts with excessive hours. Now, there are rules inside the agreement that prevent uh, fatigue issues arising by limiting the number of 12-hour nights you can do in a row or the number of days you can do in a row. And the way they get around it is to basically say, well, the agreement don't prevent me running your days into nights or, or nights back to evenings, back to nights, or the agreement doesn't prevent me um, running you straight into a 12-hour night before a planned day off that you've had and, and asked for and requested and been approved so that you can go out and do your children's sport or medical appointments or whatever it may be. You know, it's a company that uh, is consistent in pursuing its own self-interest against anyone who gets in the way of that. This company is attacking its workforce. They certainly are some of the worst examples of companies that exploited JobKeeper. Cube had put a position to all of their clients that their cargo had to go to Melbourne, couldn't be discharged here because the MUA had a two-week stoppage on And we've written to them and said that's not the case. And in fact, all of those vessels that went to Melbourne could be completely discharged within three days of arriving at port under the bans uh, and action that's currently in place. But instead, they chose to do the seven, eight-day sale to Melbourne one or two day discharge, let it sit there for a while and bring it back and it's a 21 day turnaround when we could have had it off uh, in three days here. And as I said, the stuff around work-life balance in particular, the allocations, but all of the 42 claims uh, the company has ignored. Interestingly enough, in relation to the 1400 uh, allocation time we're seeking, they used to informally do that 
but as soon as we put it up as a claim, they went it back. They sent it back to three fifty nine in the afternoon, just as some sort of vindictive move against their own workforce. And it's only going to be with the support of the uh, broader trade union movement and the conviction of the workforce here that we'll get through this. We aren't even able to get them back at the table at the moment. That's the key thing. Not over eighteen months, as I said, uh, eight or nine EBA meetings had not agreed to one claim, and the workforce here have drawn a line in the sand to try and get them back to the table. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. Now to an issue that is simmering on the central coast of New South Wales. The local government union, the United Services Union, has warned the central coast community that the council's review into local water and sewerage operations could open the door to the sell-off of these vital community services by the cash-strapped council. We spoke to Luke Hutchinson from the USU for an update. So council probably October last year got to the stage where they could not pay their workers. So they were basically insolvent. So, and that was a whole raft of issues that occurred where basically the collapse of, of their, their financial system and had lost control of all their accounts and, and then basically been eroding their bank flow in terms of um, restricted funds where certain council, whether it's rates or whether it's water, where it's sewerage, there's certain areas of the council which, which are covered by the Local Government Act, which are restricted funds. That led to the loss of, uh, well, we, we went through a process of a, uh, a, a voluntary redundancy program in earlier this year. Um, then we went through a full restructure. Um, the union um, worked with the, with the administrator and council. Um, we put in a process, what is known as a mix and match program, where we out of 387 people which were affected by the restructuring associated processes, we only had three forced redundancies. So that was unfortunate for those three people. You know, we did we did everything for, but the the rest of the job losses were done by a voluntary basis. So we um, and that so that was resolved at the end of the financial year, and then that pretty much put council with the restructuring with the rest of their finances back on track. So what what was announced last week was that um, the council are now going to a consultant to review the the operating model of their water and sewerage directorate, um, their water and sewerage service provider for the, which is the the third biggest in New South Wales behind Hunter and Sydney Water. Um, and there's five different options that they're they're asking the consultant to provide a preferred model for that. Um, and one of those was was a, a full privatisation or what you'd call a sell-off, which has obviously raised the ire of the union and, and our members and obviously the, and it would probably no doubt the community. That whole entity has been solely paid by, by the ratepayers and, and continue to be. And um, to have a potentially an administrator or a council make a decision at a bureaucrat level to sell it off isn't due process in terms of the community and we'd be extremely concerned about another tranche of... Two, two, fifty, three hundred jobs in the in the in the local Central Coast community lost if it was a full privatisation. Now we're working with the council. That's one of the options. We've made our comments very clear about, you know, our what what would be a relentless campaign to ensure that it remained in public hands if they do go down that track. Um, hence, you know, the awareness back out in the community and our and our position on it. But we'll continue to work with council over the coming weeks and months. Um, the other options um, would all probably require some form of 
uh, legislation changes, which is obviously something that would have to go through to the state government. So that's always an interesting process, especially when you've got um, the crossbench um, and and the unions um, strong a, a lot affiliations with some of those parties on the crossbench to influence an outcome to the betterment of our members and then obviously the farm to the community. Losing control of water and sewage because of what appears to be an incompetent council is that what is that fair to say? Well, there is no council at the moment. Um, they've all been suspended. Um, so they're actually under administrator. So there is no there is no council in place at the moment at, at Central Coast, which makes it even more concerning to the community. They don't have any elected members there. So the the administrator was set up was been placed there by the state government, and basically that person Ricard is the council. So they ultimately they've got the the decision under the act at the moment in relation to this matter about the the, the issues with the environment and um, obviously the essential service which, which water is and you know we've just come out of a, a pretty horrific drought and I'm, I'm sure it's not over in all, all places but if you start losing control of that essential service it's a supply and demand issue and obviously the, um, the private sector can um, do what they do like they do in the electricity and you need to pay what, what they make you to pay and um, you're at mercy to that profit-making business. They've uh, looked at this and said that this whole infrastructure, the water and sewage, is worth $4 billion, uh, but also it, re it returned funds to the council. So there's another aspect to this. Uh, the council coming out of administration will have fewer options for... Um, raising funds. Well, this is, and this is where it doesn't make sense again to the to the union that this is providing a, a key pillar of council's financial recovery, and we know this. It's a bit like a tradesperson selling their tools to pay their phone bill. It doesn't not make any sense, and they can't make any more money. And this has been the biggest issue with local government at the moment. The um, because it is, they provide essential services to the community, there is very little um, revenue that can be derived from a lot of the services local government provides to the community, other than one-off one state or federal grants, and then sometimes they're left with an asset like a park. You know, a federal government or a state government where there's an election will, will put a park in and fund that, but then council's then left with the asset on their asset register that they have to then continue to service. And, and to actually then charge back to the community, it's very difficult to do that under under the rate-pegging system. Now, there's only a couple of areas of local government where you can derive decent revenue. Obviously, one is water and sewerage because you it's a uh, you, you on on charge some of the service and and the and the usage back to the um, to the ratepayer. Obviously, then you've got waste waste management, but a lot of that waste management, like say waste um, like tips and so forth, um, and and curbside collection. Um, but a lot of that is then eaten up by state government taxes as well. And then you've only got the, the local, the theatres and potentially pools. But again, a lot of them are really running not-for-profit, more more just breaking even. This is where we, we don't make any sense and to sell off, to flog off a, a large public asset, which is essential to every single community in the, um, in the world. It's it's outrageous, really, that that, that, that can be contemplated. In, in Australia... You can't have you can't have not you can't have water not have water or sewage running. Um, it's an essential service, and for you know to be run for profit, it does not seem to be a reasonable outcome to any of this. When the the community wouldn't even be able to even have a, a say 
in the matter because they've got actually no democratically elected council at this stage. So it's a, it's a sort of a shift towards some sort of Americanization of the economy. Well, potentially, um, if, if that was the case, if, if that's what they end up doing, for sure, where you've got um, like exactly what's happened in America, where you've got areas of, of um, America don't have a fit and proper drinking water because um, it doesn't suit the, the private the runner of it because it's going to t- affect the shareholders and the, and the bottom line budget. So how are your members feeling? Oh, look, uh, there was a great deal of frustration and anger last year, um, of course. You know, we got to the stage where they weren't nearly paid and the USU had to go basically and meet with the, get along with the local government minister to get some funds over the coast so these so the workers continue to get paid. We worked through that. We got to the other side of this, and then now for this to come out straight on the back of that, you know, again, um, the anger raises again. They're they're fearful for their jobs. They're fearful for their families. They live on a the area of the central coast where, where especially youth unemployment is isn't normally very high compared to the rest of the country. There's Central Coast Council is one of the largest employers on the central coast. It's you know it's sandwiched between Newcastle and Sydney. So if you don't have a good paying decent job on the central coast then it's a travel and then in the middle of a pandemic it's probably something you don't want to do as well so there's a lot of concern members out there but we're reassuring them and we'll and we'll work with with the government we'll work with council and, and we're hopeful that we can obviously call upon the community as well if need be um to ensure that the, the right outcome happens here you're on stick together workers stories union news and social justice issues we now turn to New South Wales COVID response. Health versus business is the question and who pays? With the political rhetoric focusing on individual non-compliance, targeting particular suburbs and ramping up vaccination with an undertow of we must learn to live with the virus. However, little is said about the lax non-regulated business reaction to lockdowns, with even luxury stores still open and essential workplaces without government-regulated and enforced cleaning and ventilation regimes, which has had the inevitable result of spreading COVID. There is a worker-led response to this let-it-rip policy, which points out that the we-must-live-with-the-virus mantra is coming from a leadership which has failed to use the powers it has to suppress the COVID spread in Sydney, a leadership which has designed a plan that will cost no money to business and refuses to put money into public hospitals or even to use its regulatory powers to do anything other than ramp up the police and army to corral people into particularly targeted suburbs as if a virus knows not to cross the local government area boundary. When put like that, it sort of deflates the panic balloon raised every time you listen to a New South Wales government COVID press conference. But of course, it is workers and the community that are at risk. First, we hear from one of the conveners of the Lockdown to Zero campaign, followed by a word from a Bunnings worker on the front line of the Go Soft on Business New South Wales COVID response. So this campaign is to put the case for a society that prioritises the health of people before the urgent need of the bosses of Bunnings, Coles and every construction site in Sydney to make even more profits for themselves. We are here because the federal government and the New South Wales government and the bosses throughout Australia have pushed and pushed for the freedom to make profits 
for the wealthiest in, in society during a pandemic at the expense of our freedom to live healthily. We are here because of the repeated failures of a leaky hotel quarantine system and the refusal to fix them. We are here because of the smug complacency of it's not a race approach to vaccination and the stubborn refusal of Gladys Berejiklian and the New South Wales government to use lockdowns quickly because it upset people like the Business Council of Australia. But we're also here because we know that millions of ordinary people in Australia do not accept the lies that we are told every day that Delta can't be stopped, that we are to the blame for the spread, for doing the wrong thing, and that the dead are to blame because they were not vaccinated. We are here to put the perfectly rational, necessary and possible case for measures to stop this spread and to put elimination back firmly on the agenda. We are here to refuse to live with the virus when we can see that it does not have to be this way. And the alternatives are the terrible tragedies unfolding around the world. We are here to campaign for a lockdown that focuses on where transmission is actually occurring, that all non-essential services are closed, that workplaces that need to be open are made safe by PPE, by cutting down on production, limiting the number of workers in a workplace, and that opening up does not occur when it threatens those who are not yet vaccinated, including our children and vulnerable Aboriginal communities. We are here to campaign for paying working people properly so they can stay home instead of living in terror of going to work and bringing the virus home. And we are here to stop what Raina McIntyre, a leading epidemiologist at UNSW, has described as the potentially catastrophic collapse of our health system in the coming weeks. And we are here because we know that social solidarity and public resistance have so far stopped our government taking the Boris Johnson road of let the bodies pile high. That is an actual quote. And we want to continue to build that opposition. Our third speaker tonight is not afforded the capacity to speak out about the dangerous conditions they work in because their bosses at West Farm, who own Bunnings, want to continue to hold team meetings at their work that boast of the record profits they are making in this pandemic. They're a Bunnings worker who recently wrote a red flag article that has been viewed nearly 200,000 times about the need to shut down non-essential workplaces. Somebody else is actually going to read out their speech uh, because obviously, given, uh, given the pressure on Bunnings workers uh, that is happening from their bosses, we need to protect their anonymity. Thanks, Moira. And, yeah, one of the things that unions need to fight for is to not have gag orders uh, put um, in the contracts of uh, retail workers or any workers for that matter. So finally, uh, Bunnings and other nurseries and hardware stores um, have been moved uh, to online click and collect and trade only in 12 hotspot LGAs. This is eight weeks into our so-called lockdown. Bunnings has now gone uh, further and has closed all stores across Greater Sydney uh, to the public. This has come incredibly late. Since early July, workers at Bunnings have been arguing for this to happen. At the East Garden store in early July, more than 50 workers signed a petition for the store to close immediately. 
uh, to protect the health of both the workers there and the broader community. They called for greater protection for casual workers and for high-risk workers to be stood down immediately on full pay uh, while the outbreak continues. For nearly two months, Bunnings management at a store, state and national level have ignored these calls for maximum safety for their team that they purport to care so much about. But the demands and the pressure continued with dozens of workers pushing managers at all levels on the ground in stores and in live streamed up forums. Before the lockdown came into effect, workers had successfully pressured management into taking the minimal COVID safety measures more seriously. So workers got the hire shops closed across Sydney, successfully pushed uh, for more rigorous uh, systems around QR check-ins and social distancing compliance. And they even forced managers into backing down around basically COVID denial claims that some were making that the virus isn't airborne uh, and that it is compared to the flu, um, for instance. And now, uh, despite the constant claims uh, from the Bunnings Managing Director, Mike Schneider, that they are simply following government guidelines, all stores in Sydney have moved to online and trade only, going beyond the government's guidelines that management has been so eager to fall back on in its defence. While workers uh, and the objective uh, situation which grows more dire have succeeded in forcing Bunnage to close to the public now, it's worth reflecting on and being furious about how long it has taken. Uh, so well over 30 stores have been exposure sites across Sydney and New South Wales since the start of the current outbreak. Multiple workers have contracted the virus and it remains unclear whether this was from work uh, as the contact tracing system is now in shambles. Bunnings management has consistently put their profits over the health of their workers. Record-breaking sales on weekends have seen West Farmers shares reach an all-time high. As the anonymous article written by uh, a Bunnings worker states, uh, for months workers have been the sacrificial lambs to these massive profits. Workers um, have been victimised and intimidated for speaking up, which is why I'm reading this out. So veiled threats were made around job security uh, should the stores close. And workers were asked if they'd like to take a mental health leave if they had a problem with the store being open. So trying to silence uh, people speaking up about it being open. Uh, and they would, uh, they would have to, of course, take that out of their sick or holiday pay. Workers uh, who have refused to serve customers without masks on or who aren't complying with social distancing have been told by managers that maybe they're the problem, not the customers. Others have been disciplined through other means. And even now, on the eve of the stores being closed uh, to the public, uh, which comes into effect on Monday, the 23rd of August, management has put a big call out via messages uh, for as many workers as possible to work this weekend. They know uh, that the stores will be chaotically busy, potentially super spreader events, and they want as many workers to be on the front lines, endangering themselves possibly more than at any other time during this pandemic. Workers at Bunnings know that while they've achieved the key victory they were after, the fight won't be over. If Bunnings management's track record is anything to go by, they'll be wanting to open back up as soon as they can get away with it, uh, regardless of the dangers uh, we may still be in. Vaccination rates getting to 50, 60 and 70% should not be used as an excuse to open back up while case numbers are so high. Bunnings needs to stay closed until we reach COVID-0. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with the show, we are podcast at 3cr.org.au on iTunes and Spotify. And until next week, remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. Stick Together.